engine running. Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery, advances, questions, research, technology. Unbelievable. Without further ado, this is The Naked Scientist. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist. This is the show that brings you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine. I'm Chris Smith. And this week, will a new vaccine help to turn the tide against malaria? As Japan releases radioactive water into the sea from Fukushima, should we be concerned? And what and who have won Nobel Prizes in science this year? And a bit later on... Why a lion's roar isn't the most feared sound on the South African savanna. The World Health Organization has approved a new malaria vaccine that can be produced on a massive scale and it's hoped that this jab, which has been developed by researchers at the University of Oxford, can help to turn the tide against a disease that's killed millions of babies and infants worldwide. So how does it work? Well, I've been speaking to immunologist Lisa Stockdale. In the vaccine vial, there is what we call a VLP, which is a virus-like particle. This isn't a virus, it's just that it's small and spherical and has a really high density of this malaria protein that we're trying to show the body on its surface. We inject this alongside what we call an adjuvant. So this is a reagent that kicks the immune system into action. And so what happens is that this malaria-specific protein on the surface of this vaccine is identified as a foreign object. And then the body goes into its normal process of trying to get rid of it. And in that process, it develops antibodies against that specific protein. Is this an essential part of the parasite then? So if you make those antibodies and they're there waiting, so when you encounter malaria for real, it clogs it up. Is that how it works? Pretty much, yes. It is essential to the parasite's ability to infect human cells. And so when we inject somebody with this vaccine, we push the human body to um, make antibodies that are specific to that protein. And how good is it in clinical trials? Incredibly good. We have been testing it in African countries that have malaria endemic in the population this is 75% effective. So you would have 75% fewer people getting malaria if everybody got vaccinated. Is this adults, children, both? This is all children, five to 36 month olds. There are multiple different types of malaria, aren't there? So will this work against all of them? It is not. So this vaccine that we've just had WHO recommendation for specifically targets Plasmodium falciparum. So Plasmodium is the malaria pathogen and then falciparum is the specific subtype. So there is also um, a malaria called Vivax, which is particularly present in South America. And this vaccine, unfortunately, doesn't uh, target that type of malaria. Could it be adjusted, updated? Will the same strategy work or are we back to square one with these other forms of malaria? We think that it could be tweaked. And actually, that's something that our group is working on to try and see if we can make an alternative version of this vaccine specifically for 
with Vivax form. And how long does the protection last for? Is this a one-hit wonder? You have it once and then you're protected indefinitely or do you envisage we're going to have to do boosters? The way that the vaccine has been tested so far is that there are three doses given one month apart and then a booster dose given 12 months after the third dose. So that's what's been tested at the moment and that's what we've got data for. Um, Earlier trials containing... um, smaller numbers of participants have tested durability of the vaccine. And we know that it maintains out to about three years, but we still need to do further work to understand how and exactly how long in greater numbers of um, of people. Yours is the second malaria vaccine that the WHO have recommended. What's the first one and how does yours compare to that one? So the first one is called RTSS and it was developed by a company called GSK and that was recommended by WHO about this time two years ago. Our vaccine and RTSS target exactly the same protein on the surface of the malaria parasite. So they are really similar. The main difference being that we get higher density proteins on the surface of our vaccine. So we think that that causes the immune response to be more specific to those proteins. When are you hoping that this is going to be in the field? And when it is, what sort of an impact do you think it's going to have? So the WHO have said that this is to be rolled out mid next year, so mid 2024. The manufacturer of the vaccine has vaccines stored and ready to go. And I think that the impact will be enormous. There's a huge issue with the current vaccine RTSS not having sufficient doses for the demand that's out there from African countries. So at the moment, there's 18 million doses available between now and 2025 for RTSS, whereas the manufacturer that we're working with have said that their capacity is 100 million doses a year, which could be doubled So I think in terms of supply and demand, the impact of this WHO recommendation is absolutely enormous. Lisa Stockdale talking about the vaccine that her team at Oxford University have just had approved by the World Health Organisation. Now, the scientists who've made outstanding contributions in their fields have been recognised this week with coveted Nobel Prizes. And Will Tingle is reporting on the recipients of this year's award for physics. Electrons are fundamental to electricity, magnetism and processes in the cell, to name a few things. But they are very, very small and very, very fast. Anyone with a camera will tell you that taking a photo of a moving object with a long shutter speed means you get nothing but a blur. So to have any hope of seeing electrons, you need a very short pulse of light. And that's why this year's Nobel Prize for Physics goes to three people. French-Swedish physicist Anne Lullier, French physicist Pierre Agostini and Hungarian-born Ferenc Krauss. With their powers combined, they have demonstrated how to create pulses of light so short that they can observe the way in which electrons move. How short? Attoseconds short. A billionth of a billionth of a second. There are more attoseconds in one second than there are seconds in the current age of the universe. How could you possibly hope to capture any sort of image in that short of a time frame? Well, you need to do some clever stuff with light. Light is an electromagnetic wave, so the shortest pulse of light must consist of at least one full oscillation of the electromagnetic field. 
Imagine a sine wave that's up, down, then up again. Traditional lasers can create a one-wavelength pulse just fine. But these lasers typically operate in the near-infrared region of the electromagnetic spectrum, where the wavelength is much longer than the scale of the atoms. So seeing electrons is out of the question. A much shorter wavelength is needed. The breakthrough came when it was discovered that an infrared laser passed through gaseous atoms interacts with these atoms and causes overtones. Overtones are waves that complete a number of oscillations for each oscillation in the original wave, meaning they have a shorter wavelength. Under the right conditions, the cycles of these overtones coincide, like when indicator lamps in a queue of waiting cars suddenly all appear to be blinking in sync. The scientists managed to synchronise the higher frequency overtones generated when their infrared pulses interacted with gas atoms. The result is pulses of light with a much higher frequency. And this is what allowed them to observe electrons at intervals that are small enough for them not to be blurred. So why does this matter? Well, to understand something, you need to know where it is. And being able to pulse light for such a short period of time makes this possible for the world of electrons inside atoms and molecules. It takes electrons 150 billion billionths of a second to go around the nucleus of a hydrogen atom. Before this breakthrough, we could only see the outline of an atom's nucleus, but now we have the ability to see electron positions around atoms. And who knows? We could even start to manipulate where electrons go, which could have huge implications for stuff like solar energy. So congratulations to Ampierre and Ferenc for their hard-earned prize. And also thanks to Johan Nottinger of Nottingham University for helping me understand the science, which I would argue is an equally impressive task. We'll tingle reporting and we'll hear about some other big winners later in the programme. To Japan now, where the owners of the country's badly damaged Fukushima nuclear power plant have begun releasing a second batch of treated radioactive wastewater into the sea. The wastewater will continue to be released for decades to come and it's prompted a furious response from fishing groups as well as neighbouring countries including South Korea and China. The story goes back to 2011 when, in the aftermath of a massive offshore earthquake, an ensuing tsunami took out the plant's power supply and caused three of the reactors to melt down, contaminating the site. Authorities there have cleaned up, but... From Portsmouth University, environmental scientist Jim Smith. Since then, the Japanese have been storing what's called treated wastewater, water that's been produced from the cooling of the reactor on the site. All that slightly radioactive water has been treated and stored in about a thousand giant tanks. In August of this year, the Japanese decided to start discharging this treated wastewater into the Pacific Ocean. And this has caused a lot of controversy because some people have claimed that it's going to damage the ocean and the marine ecosystem, and it's going to damage people eating seafood from the Pacific. So I and a couple of colleagues in Australia wrote an article in the journal Science about why we think the scientific evidence shows that this release of treated wastewater isn't a risk to the Pacific. What's actually in the water? The water has been contaminated by things that are in the reactor core when it had its meltdown. So one of the main contaminants was a thing called radioactive cesium. Radioactive cesium can be damaging in the environment, but it's also relatively easy to treat in wastewater. So the Japanese have set up things called iron exchange columns, which take out the radioactive cesium and many of the other radioactive elements in the wastewater. What they can't strip out is a thing called tritium. So tritium is a radioactive form of hydrogen. And what happens in nuclear sites all over the world is that some of the water passing through the reactor 
becomes what we call tritiated. In other words, instead of having H2O, which is ordinary water, one of the hydrogens is replaced by its radioactive form, tritium. So it becomes a thing called HTO, hydrogen, tritium and oxygen. And the thing about tritiated water is chemically it's identical to ordinary water. It behaves exactly the same. And that means that it's incredibly difficult to take it out of the wastewater because chemically it can't be distinguished from all that mass of ordinary water. And if we think about the amount, there's 1.3 million tonnes of water. Within that, there's about three grams of tritium. So separating that three grams is really, really difficult. And so what nuclear sites all over the world do with tritiated water is that they release it into the local river or lake or in, into the ocean. What's the scale of the threat that that may pose? We measure radioactivity in becquerels. So there are 1,500 becquerels per litre of tritium in the wastewater when it's released. And just to get an idea of what that means, the World Health Organization drinking water limit for tritium is 10,000 becquerels per litre, so about seven times higher. So it's really at a very low level. The other radioactive elements will be less than 1% of the Japanese regulatory limit for discharge to the sea, which is already quite cautious. Radiation doses have been calculated, and even to people who are consuming seafood from that local area, the dose is about 2,000 times less than the radiation dose that we all get from natural radioactivity in the ground, in the air, cosmic rays. So it's a really incredibly low dose. It equates to about a quarter of a dental x-ray. I think one commentator put it that it's about a thousand times less than you'd get just flying from London to LA. So Prince Harry, every time he pops over to London to sue a newspaper, gets a dose a thousand times bigger than you'd pick up from this. I could say a few hundred times, but yeah, it's trivial. So when we go above the atmosphere, we're exposed to more cosmic radiation. So frequent flyers can get significantly higher doses than other people just because they're above the atmosphere and air crew as well. So given that this actually appears in the grand scheme of things to be such a low risk, why has there been so much vocal opposition? And particularly, for instance, from China, because as one other person pointed out, that the amount of operating coal-fired power stations in China that are releasing radiation into the air just by virtue of the fact you're burning something that contains trace amounts of radioactivity in the coal that you burn, China are releasing far more than this on a daily basis. That's, that's right. And China, of course, has lots of nuclear power stations which are also releasing more than this. So there's a nuclear power station in China that emits about nine times more tritium annually into the Pacific than this Fukushima release will do. So why have the Chinese been so vocal against it? Because they've, they've made quite a song and a dance about this. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm a scientist, I'm not a politician, but <laughs> this has to be about politics. It's certainly not based on scientific evidence. Jim Smith from Portsmouth University there. Now, throughout the programme, we're taking a closer look at this year's Nobel Prize winners, They've just been announced, and uh, here's James Titko on the award for chemistry. When it comes to chemistry, size certainly matters. And now, one of the world's largest awards for the subject rewards some of the tiniest of entities we can make. 
Known as quantum dots, these atomic scale structures, millionths of a millimetre across and composed of just a few thousand atoms, are tiny inorganic particles that glow a range of colours from red to blue when exposed to light. The colour they emit depends upon the size of the particle. This technology has been used in some television screens and monitors. They also boost the efficiency of the photovoltaic cells we use to capture the sun's energy, and they make highly sensitive light detectors feasible. They also work as catalysts to speed up industrially important reactions such as hydrogen production and work as diagnostic sensor molecules for medical imaging and disease. All of these use cases hinge on the fact that as particles become smaller, quantum effects kick in that alter their chemistry. One of the winners of this year's Nobel Prize, Russia's Alexei Ekimov, made the crucial observation in the early 1980s that stained glass changed colour according to how long and how hard it was heated. He correctly reasoned that tiny particles of copper in the glass were growing or shrinking with the temperature, and this was affecting the way they interacted with light. Later, working in the US, Lewis Bruce made a similar observation that light-driven reactions involving solutions of the substance cadmium sulfide changed over time. He realised that the crystals were growing in the solution on his lab bench, and as their size changed, so did their quantum properties. It was obvious that if the size and structure of the particles could be precisely controlled, there was huge potential to manipulate their chemical properties. And that breakthrough came in the early 1990s, when the third recipient, Mongi Bowendi, pioneered a way to make quantum dots with uniform sizes and prescribed sizes, opening the door to the technological, industrial and medical exploitation of the science that we see today. So although the discovery hinges on the science of the very small, the implications are huge and indeed world-changing. James Titko reporting. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound, perfect music for audio and video productions. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith. Still to come, we profile the winners of the Nobel Prize for Medicine. But first, to South Africa and a new study into the ecology of fear. The most terror-inducing sound on the whole of the South African savannah has been identified by researchers working in the Kruger National Park. Will Tingle. Take it from me, the soundscape of the South African savannah contains many noises that might put the chills into you. From the strained roar of a lion, to the unearthly hoot of an owl, and of course there are other noises to be wary of. But none of those inspired the most fear into animals. There is one more noise that causes mammal species to flee like no other. And if you haven't already guessed, it's this. My dad was a teacher, so I grew up in a home that everything I knew was sports. I played tennis, I played cricket, I played rugby, and I loved my sports. Regular human conversation. Now, I'm terrible at small talk too, but not enough to flee for my life. But this is the case for nearly all of the mammals that use waterholes in the greater Kruger area of South Africa. I spoke to lead author Liana Zanette from Western University Canada about what kind of fear normal human chatter can instill. 
It was remarkable. Across the mammal community, 95% of the wildlife responded two times more fearfully to humans, and they left the water hole 40% faster than they did when they heard even lions. The implications of this are huge for several reasons. Not only has human speech been identified across a number of individual species, it has been singled out as one you cannot afford to be anywhere near. And the question as to whether this fear is innate or learned is very difficult to answer. Naturally, awareness of a predatory noise spreads quickly through a community. But there are also studies that say certain prey species fear the sound of predators that have been extinct in that area for sometimes many, many generations. But the African bush is full of noises, birds, insects and what have you. So how do mammals in Kruger know what they're hearing is definitely human? Because we talk a lot. (laughs) The nice thing about using lions versus humans is that we're really quite similar in a lot of ways. Humans and lions have been competitors for prey for millennia, but also lions are large and they're group hunting. Humans are the second largest predator out there. And we also are group hunters, but also lions talk a lot. So do humans. And so it's not going to be anything unique. Prey are going to have experienced humans as predators forever. What the wildlife out there is telling us is that they recognize this And they're not stupid, right? So if you have a dangerous predator that is 10 meters away from you, you do not hang out in the neighborhood. It's still very well, but being fearful and therefore wary of a predator is surely a good thing, right? Just the fear of predators can have effects on population numbers because scared prey eat less, so they're going to produce fewer offspring. We've shown in experiments that thinking that there's predators around does lead to 53% fewer kids that parents are able to produce. The idea that just the presence of humans alone is driving down successful breeding rates in animals is definitely cause for concern and something to be considered for future conservation schemes. But there may actually be a way for conservationists to use this to their advantage. What we're interested in looking at then is whether or not we might be able to use fear of humans as a conservation tool to protect species. So for example, rhinos, right? We're we're really interested in seeing whether or not, because in, in some of our work in South Africa, we show that those rhinos, they do not like it when they think that people are around, right? They flee and they leave the waterhole. Rhinos are really heavily poached in South Africa. And it's possible that what we might be able to do is go to areas where there's heavy poaching, illegal hunting of rhinos, and play something that rhinos do not like, which is humans talking, to keep rhinos out of those areas where they are heavily poached. There has been some research that shows that rhinos on sort of a long, long time scale and a scale of months will stay away from areas where speakers have been set up, people are speaking. So it's all possible. And I think that, you know, thinking about the flip side is always a, is always a good thing. Leona's Annette there in conversation with our very own Will Tingle, and that paper has just come out in the journal Current Biology. Well, we're going to profile a few more Nobel Prize winners now, and I have been taking a closer look at this year's awards for medicine. They've been administered to billions, and they've protected millions from severe COVID-19 infection. 
Now, the mRNA vaccines that helped to conquer the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic have also secured a place in scientific history with a Nobel Prize in medicine for the two scientists, Kathleen Carrico and Drew Reisman, who created them. Ever since Edward Jenner carried out the first vaccination back in 1796, vaccines have followed a fairly repetitive path. We inject weakened or related forms of infections or toxins, or we chemically brutalise infectious entities to render them harmless before administering the leftovers. Sometimes we modify harmless viruses to turn them into Trojan horses to carry inside the body key parts of infectious agents that we want to protect against. But in all cases, the net result's the same. The immune system ends up making antibody molecules, and to a varying degree white blood cells called T-cells, that can neutralise and block the infectious threat, should we meet it for real. These methods work reliably and well, but they do have drawbacks. They can be slow and expensive to develop, live vaccines aren't suitable for everyone, and when dealing with fast-evolving threats, it can be hard for the technology to keep pace with the infection. But... From the moment the scientists cracked the genetic code and worked out how DNA stores our biochemical recipes and transcribes the messages we need into simpler, short-lived copies called messenger RNA or mRNA strands, researchers realised it might be possible to deliver our own messages into cells in a genetic form, including, potentially, the instructions for substances normally used in vaccines, thus turning our cells into mini-vaccine manufacturing plants. It sounded simple, but when scientists tried adding their own mRNA genetic codes to the body, the cells of the immune system somehow knew that the mRNA was foreign, and they destroyed it. This was the challenge that confronted and frustrated Kathleen Carrico and Drew Weissman for many years. But their eureka moment came in 2005, when they showed that, compared with pristine mRNA made in a test tube or by microbes like bacteria, the mRNA strands found in our cells are chemically modified. Extra molecules are added to some of the genetic letters in the sequence. It's a bit like the embellishments and decorations that you see in old books around the opening letters of paragraphs. And these are what enable the body to tell friend from foe. So, they wondered, what would happen if they substituted more chemically colourful genetic letters into their mRNA genetic sequences? Would this avoid the immune tripwires that were being triggered? Indeed it would, and the inflammatory response that had been thwarting their previous efforts was almost completely abolished overnight, opening the door to the use of mRNA vaccines as a therapeutic vehicle. There were still problems to overcome, of course, before the discovery could make its way to the clinic. Compared with its chemical relative DNA, mRNA, while much easier to slip inside our cells, is a much more fragile molecule, so scientists had to develop ways to package it into a stable form that would also ensure efficient delivery once it was injected. The solution was to wrap up the mRNA molecules in tiny oily bubbles called lipid nanoparticles. Before the pandemic struck, the technology had been quietly evolving in the background. mRNA vaccines for Zika and a virus that's a close relative of the COVID virus had both been successfully developed and tested in animals. But the COVID pandemic offered the opportunity to capitalise on the power and agility of this new approach to clinical medicine. The vaccines are easy to make and update at scale, and they're very safe. And off the back of the impetus from COVID-19, the approach is unlocking new treatments for cancer, as well as other infectious and degenerative diseases. COVID-19 gave mRNA vaccines the shot in the arm that the industry sorely needed. The technology's impact is likely to reach far and wide, hence its recognition by the Nobel Committee. As Carrico herself says, it's just limitless. 
And now it's time for the question of the week. And James Titko took on this inquiry from listener Bert. How do new species come about without falling victim to inbreeding problems? Thank you so much, Bert. We call this evolutionary process speciation. And to help me with the specifics... I'm Roger Butlin. I'm Professor of Evolutionary Biology at the University of Sheffield. There are various different ways in which new species can form, either where one population gets isolated, usually geographically, and diverges. The other option is essentially where one species occupies two different environments and natural selection adapts different populations within the species to different environments. At what definitive point do you say that you've got a brand new species? That is difficult. A classic example of this would be Darwin's finches in the Galapagos Islands. The islands formed volcanically and so a new habitat was created. And then a few individuals colonised those islands from the South American mainland. Then for many generations after that, they had no contact with the mainland. And so they evolved independently on, on the islands. And actually, smaller populations evolved independently on different islands, eventually forming multiple different species on, on the Galapagos. And the other way new species can form is a case of populations living in the same place, but beginning to diverge to gain an advantage in the different habitats in that close geographical proximity. Another form of speciation would be like in the coastal snails that we study, where some populations of the snails live in boulder field habitats where there are lots of crab predators, and other populations live on rocky headlands where there are very few predators but there's very strong wave action. So those populations are selected to adapt in different ways. Uh, when they're exposed to predators, they grow large with thick shells. And when they're exposed to wave action, they grow small with thin shells. What's the advantage of the small, thin shells on the rocks? Um, they're more streamlined and less likely to be dislodged by waves. They can also hide in crevices on, on the rocks. And the bigger shells on the shore make it harder for the predators to break into them. That makes a lot of sense. But in that diverging case, is it right then that animals who start to develop new traits continue to breed with other animals as they evolve? It's more often a very gradual process. And that's why it's hard to point to an exact generation where we can say we're defining a new species now. Yes, that's right. It's a gradual process. And often, perhaps, when a few individuals arrive in a new environment like the Galapagos Islands, the population was able to grow very quickly. There were lots of resources and few competitors. And because of that, the inbreeding problems were not so serious. Thank you to Professor Roger Butlin from the University of Sheffield and to you, Bert, for that interesting question. A bit of tidying up to do now, and we've heard from John in relation to a previous question of the week, where we were looking at the difference in time it takes to freeze either hot or cold water. Now, John correctly points out that heating removes dissolved gas and some temporary hardness too, which will raise the freezing point. So something else to bear in mind with regard to that particular comparison. Thanks for that, John. And we look forward to next week's question of the week, 
here's what we'll be answering from Donald. Water that collects underground is used by humans and is often replenished by various precipitation, such as snow and rain. How did people find wells in the past? Or was it just dig till the water table is breached? Well, we'll be very intrigued to hear the result of that one. Indeed, we will. And if you have a question or an answer for us, why not drop us a line? It's chris at thenakedscientist.com. There's also a question of the week board on our Naked Scientist forum at nakedscientist.com forward slash forum. All input, very welcome. And that is regrettably all we have time for this week. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thanks for listening and from all of us here at The Naked Scientist. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.